0: Hi there, and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Political Director
1: Rick Klein. And I'm ABC's Deputy Political Director Mary Alice Parks.
0: And a happy Fourth of July to everyone out there in listener land. Uh, we, as we come up against, uh, against this holiday, we'll talk about the president's plans for it, uh, an unprecedented uh, visibility by the president, uh, military presence as well. Um, but I want to start with the state of the Democratic race, Mary Alice, because the hyped, the much-hyped uh, first debates – uh, came into very big numbers in the Democratic Party. And we are out with a brand new poll that was in the field in the days after this debate uh, that tells us a lot of interesting things about where the field stands as we head into the hot days of summer, um, uh, starting with the top-line numbers here. We are seeing Kamala Harris climbing her way into the top tier of candidates. There are four candidates in double digits. She is one of them. She's tied for third in our poll at 11 percent behind Joe Biden's 29 and Bernie Sanders 23. And a lot of it, Mary Alice, does seem to be tied to reaction to the debate.
1: Right. Among those who actually watched the debates, 72 percent of these Democratic leaning voters said that she had a standout performance that was well above any of her competitors. So clearly a winner of the debate. But it seems she also won some people over because, again, of those people who watched the debate, her support is even higher than it is overall. Uh, Nineteen percent of those who watched the debate now say they support her.
0: Yeah and that is striking. I'm also I'm also really really surprised to see the the even nature of her support across groups. She does uh, exactly the same among black voters uh, and the general population, just at 11 percent, which shows a lot of room for growth. And you also see her across ideology, whether you're liberal or conservative, across income levels, across education levels. She's kind of slow and steady. She's right there in the middle of the pack on all of those areas. If you're the Harris campaign, you have to kind of like where that where that positions you.
1: But it's not all rosy. There's another big part of our poll that asked uh, these Democratic-leaning voters who they think has the best shot in a general election and still Far and away, Joe Biden takes the cake. 43% of voters, I mean, that's almost half, say that they think he is still most likely to uh, do well in a head-to-head. And we also know that Democratic voters are keenly interested in this. They will tell us on the road, you know, just anecdotally, whenever we're out in the field, Democrats say that the most important thing for them is beating President Trump. And so that is a striking number. And at some point, these two female senators in particular... Senator Warren and Senator Harris are going to have to make more and more of a pitch that they, in fact, have a general election strength.
0: Yeah, Biden's number there about the best matchup is is you combine all the other candidates and you don't get Biden's Biden's level. And that's despite um, or, you know, in the wake of a debate performance that I think most people looked at and said wasn't his strongest. And it was it was highlighted by the, uh, the the attack by Kamala Harris on the issue of busing and his his previous uh, working relationships with segregationist senators, and and by this moment, Mary Alice, which I want to talk, talk about because I feel like it's the kind of clip that you could play for a while. Listen to this.
2: I supported I the ERA from the very beginning. I'm the guy that extended the Voting Rights Act for 25 years. We got to the place where we got 98 out of 98 votes in the United States Senate doing it. I've also argued very strongly that we, in fact, deal with the notion of denying people access to the ballot box. I agree that everybody wants, they, in fact, they should... anyway, my time's up. I'm sorry.
0: My time's up. Uh, you, you got the you got Biden fired up in, in that clip. But to me, there was an air of resignation around how he'd been handling that issue and how that exchange was playing. I've never heard Joe Biden, in years of covering him, cut himself off.
1: He actually did it twice during the debate. He said, oh, oh, my time is up. We normally see candidates just steamroll past yeah. the red flashing lights. Uh, and so candidates um, and Reporters and writers like the two of us have wondered if that was, in fact, sort of a metaphor, kind of the line that the other candidates on the stage with him were basically saying about him. Joe, we love you, man, but is your time up?
0: Yeah, my time is up. And of course, this poll shows a lot of strength, and there's no suggestion that his time as a candidate uh, is up. Um, Some other polling that's been out in the last couple of days shows maybe a softer support for Joe Biden, but he is still the front runner. Uh, I want to talk for a minute about about the rest of the race, because you, you are beginning to see um, a real stratification in the race. We're going to talk to Governor Jay Inslee uh, from the great state of Washington in, in a few moments about his debate performance and his strategy from here. But Inslee is grouped in with a, with about 15 other candidates who, right now, are forget the single digits; they're at either zero or one in the poll. There are, as we mentioned, these four front runners in double digits. But there's only four other candidates who are even at 2% or more. That's important because that's the debate threshold for our debate, the ABC debate in September. It's also important just to be part of the conversation. You only have eight candidates who can even say they're at 2%. 2%. That's, that's not quite the same as a 23-, 24-, 25-person field.
1: Right. But we were just talking about whether Biden is vulnerable, whether his big percent uh, of support reflected in these early polls is because he has name recognition, because he's seen as presidential having already been in a White House, whether he's seen as someone that 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 notionally can take on the president in a head-to-head, but if he really is vulnerable um, and there's a lot of evidence for that, then where does that support go? So I hear you, Rick, that there's a lot of people who don't have a ton of support right now, but I still feel like there's a big chunk of the electorate, the Democratic electorate, that is just not dialed in yet and yeah. not sure where, where they're going to lend uh, their money, their time, their vote.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't think that the debate really clarified the field as much as it highlighted how how fluid it continues to be and how many different ways it can break down. I want to hit on on another very big story this week, um, this congressional recess week. We've seen a number of members of Congress do trips down to detention centers. Uh, we saw the presidential candidates do it at a, a, a particular place for for migrant children in Florida. Uh, most of the visits this week have been in Texas, and uh, the lawmakers. Um, some of them even smuggled their own cameras in. Um, th- the harrowing stories about what they actually saw on the ground. We've seen a number of a number of uh, uh, members of Congress talk about this in just the most vivid and, and awful way. Take a listen to what uh, what Congresswoman Madeline Dean of Pennsylvania told our, our colleague Devin Dwyer on the briefing room this week. We took a look, and just like a prison, there was a stainless steel toilet with no seat uh, with water in it. But when we tried the sink, there was no running water. The women said, oh, we were told it's okay to drink out of the toilet. They are hungry. They said they are fed food that is cold, spoiled, Uh, food for dogs, is what they said. And we should be clear about the people that are being held at these detention facilities. For most of them, they came to the United States to seek asylum. They came under legal auspices. This is not, and public perception may be different on this, the way the Trump administration has tried to cast it sometimes is different. We're not talking about um, border jumpers. We're not talking about visa overstays even. We're talking about people that came and tried to apply for asylum, and the system is being overrun at these detention facilities. And uh, it, it just it shocks, this, it shocks the conscience to see children uh, and, and other vulnerable people in just these horrid conditions.
1: I was listening to an interview today with Claudia Flores, who is the director of the International Human Rights Clinic, who went as far to say that this might be human rights violations on behalf of the administration if, in fact, people are being held um, without adequate water, without adequate sanitation, and without adequate food. Uh, You know, I was struck um, just by the fact that despite all of the attention that the lawmakers are trying to bring to this issue... Even sitting members of Congress are being told they cannot bring cameras in. The journalist in me says that is always a bad sign
0: yeah, and, and the, what they talk about privacy and security it just doesn 't really hold muster um, and and it does feel like um, in this week where we learned about this private Facebook group where so many uh, so many border patrol agents current and former appear to have been sounding off in just terrible ways about um, about members of Congress as well as. Uh, some of the some of the migrants, including some who passed away on the way, it it really does shock the conscience, uh, and and this all comes in the run up to what is typically a big national celebration, Fourth of July. I've I've got my hot dogs ready, ready for some ready for some fireworks, but there's going to be some uh, some additional guests this year at the big uh, at the big festivities on the National Mall in Washington. Um, Weather permitting, we're expecting to see flyovers by military aircraft. We're expecting to see some tanks uh, trotted out as well. And we're expecting to see a big presidential address from from President Trump, who has long talked about uh, wanting to have a military parade and long talked about wanting to address the nation on July 4th.
1: And not surprising in Washington, it's been a pretty partisan divide um, in terms of reaction to this planned parade and planned event from the White House. There are are a lot of members of Congress um, who've said, what's the big issue? It's the 4th of July. We do uh, flyovers. At baseball stadiums. And they're not wrong. I remember growing up near an Air Force base and we're flyovers every 4th of July. It was exciting to watch the Blue Angels. But obviously, there's also been Democrats who have taken real issue with this um, potential show of military might. They say that feels odd to them. It doesn't feel like a celebration of the servicemen and women, but a celebration of tanks. And also the question of whether or not this president is going to make it a a White House official event or a political rally. We have seen him, even on the White House grounds, tend to make events political. And it would be pretty shocking, I think, for folks if a taxpayer funded event on the 4th of July in front of the Lincoln Memorial turned into a highly political speech.
0: Right. Or Trump rally. We know that the Republican National Committee has been um, working with even some state partners to distribute VIP tickets to it so it'll be a political crowd, I think it 's an important distinction. We know it will be militarized we don 't know if it will be politicized there's there 's a difference and um, the the military presence by itself uh, the military they follow the orders of the commander in chief and and going out there as part of training exercises or other displays as you mentioned there 's nothing particularly shocking about it. I think the the image of tanks on the streets of Washington is a particular one, and maybe a unique one. Um, uh, there's questions about whether the roads can hold up. But the president's address, taking by itself the idea of the president talking to the country on, on Independence Day, nothing that necessarily raises alarms, but this president's a little different. And and as you mentioned, he's talked to the Boy Scouts and made it into a political rally. Uh, so he'll be very closely watched how how he reacts to this. We'll talk to Governor Inslee about his take on it. It is uh, uniquely Trumpian. I, it also strikes me, Mary Alice, that it's, it's another one of these issues where the president recognizes the power of the symbolism. And, and to the extent that there's a political fallout from it, um, how much do his, the president's political enemies want to be on the other side of the American flag and the 4th of July and the fireworks? Uh, if he frames this like he did the kneeling debate, for instance, as about patriotism, about celebrating the country, Uh, that's a tough debate for his political opponents to engage in. Uh, And we'll see how the the president handles it. But I think it also has to be a a careful moment for uh, people that will reflexively, maybe even appropriately, oppose the president. So that said, we'll take a quick break. We're going to be back in a few moments with Governor Jay Inslee, Democrat from the great state of Washington. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are pleased to be joined here on the podcast by Governor Jay Inslee, Democrat of Washington and a Democratic presidential candidate. Uh, When last you saw on your TV screen a week ago, uh, Governor Inslee, you were saying that you considered Donald Trump to be the biggest geopolitical threat to the United States. So I want to ask you, uh, given that, given um, your your that sentiment, uh, we're going to see the president address the nation um, at the Lincoln Memorial uh, it, with tanks and flyovers and and whole military brass in attendance. Uh, are, what are your thoughts about that? Uh, what's your comfort level with what we're about to witness uh, on on the Fourth of July?
2: Well, I think there's some wonderful monuments in D.C. and I I hold them very. I'm just as emotional when I see them as any American. When you're at the Washington Monument or the Lincoln Memorial or the Jefferson Memorial, you just, I mean, I've gone and read Lincoln's second inaugural a hundred times, and I, I the hair stands up my my neck every time I read them. And we know there's never going to be a memorial to Donald Trump because he's basically, this whole event is a monument to his insecurity, and I think it's very unfortunate that a nation that prouds itself on democracy and unifying messages has to be exposed to his insecurity that he's trying to cover up with tanks. And it just doesn't work. I think it is a symbolic statement, much more attuned to his admiration for Putin than it is uh, consistent with our traditions of respecting Uh, Civilian authority and the the ability of democracy to protect all of us, rather than to be suppressed by the militarization of countries. And so it's just stunning in its lack of honoring kind of the 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 traditions of America, and that's really disappointing. Now it's disappointing to me that he's actually taking money out of the parks budget as well. You know, we're honoring Mount we're taking our kids to Mount Rainier, not Mount Trump, this summer. And my parents worked revegetating the Alpine Meadows on the slopes of Mount Rainier. And I know that our maintenance budget has been hammered in our national parks. They're starving for funds. And to take another couple million dollars out of their fund, which should be going to our national parks to go to a monument to Trump's insecurity, is, is, is sad. Our nation will weather it. We'll survive it. We'll get through this. But the sooner the better what
0: what what's your feeling on who should be shouldering the costs Uh, it it sounds like you're concerned about the military nature of this event Uh, are are you concerned about the political nature of it as well do you think this is something that that should be paid for by the trump campaign or, or private sources
2: uh well first off i don't think it should be happen no matter who pays for it we just should not turn this into a partisan affair for one candidate um And obviously, that's Trump's whole modus operandi. He tries to do it with every event. He tries to politicize the Boy Scouts, for goodness sakes. And by the way, you know, I have said, and I believe this, this is a group that could foul up a two-car funeral. It takes a lot to try to foul up the 4th of July. I mean, it's like you have to wake up in the morning and say, how can I take something we all celebrate, it's a good moment of national unification, and turn it into a... Uh, you know, a, a matter of debate. That takes a lot of nefarious talent. So it's too bad, and uh, it should not be used as a, as a personal, you know, aggrandizement. It's something we should feel good about ourselves. We will succeed on this, though. The nation's bigger than this. We'll get through this. It's not going to stop the national, uh, the national agenda of democracy long term.
1: I want to turn now to immigration. We saw at that first presidential debate in Miami. So many Democratic candidates say that they'd be willing to decriminalize border crossings and change some of the laws to make it more of just a criminal offense. What do you think about this idea and Republicans saying that's evidence that Democrats are for open borders?
2: We should not be allowing use of criminal statutes to separate children from their parents. And that's what's going on right now. Uh, we have had a long tradition of using our civil laws to deport people who do not are not appropriately in the country. And what is going on right now is Trump is, is departing from long American tradition on this in order to, to tear children away from their parents. And he's doing that purposely. He's purposely creating inhumane conditions in the border. He's purposely terrorizing these children. And I think that is a departure from American values. We do have civil laws that can be used. They should be used both to uh, deport people who, who, uh, who do not qualify for asylum, but we should also be following the law to allow people to, to have their hearings. A federal court uh, yesterday in Seattle uh, ordered the Trump administration to, uh, to follow American law which allows people a hearing to determine whether or not they should be deported and, and pending that to be released in certain circumstances on bond. And where we've done that for the last 50 years, it actually has worked. There was a program during the Obama administration. It was called the Family Management System. Where it had a 99% success rate where people re- were released on bond, had custody of their children, and 99% of the time came back for their hearings. There's no reason we can't do that now rather than terrorize these children, permanently traumatize them. And this is a permanently trauma. Children carry this the rest of their lives if you talk to the to the children psychiatrists about this. So we should go back to traditional American use of our civil authorities uh, to handle this problem. Now, we have to do more than that. We should be stopping the, the, the root cause of this, is try to reduce the, the causes of this, which are, climate change refugees coming from Guatemala because they're starving to death because they can't raise crops anymore. But instead of uh, addressing that fundamental problem and the violence and economic insecurity, Trump has actually made it worse by stopping our efforts to try to help these people stay in their homes rather than come to this nation and being driven here. So there's a lot of things we need to change.
1: Yeah, I saw that in your immigration proposal, you call for more foreign aid to that northern triangle of Central American countries. Uh, But there are a lot of Republicans in particular, but but uh, but even some experts that worry those governments are just too unstable. What do you think about Mm. whether or not that aid would get into good hands and be productive use of, of of American taxpayer money?
2: Well, I think that we have seen success in in our foreign aid, and there's no reason to say, except that Trump can't manage a two-car funeral. If we had a decent president to to actually administer programs, we've done this historically and has had success. The Marshall Plan helped rebuild Europe. No one I know of says the Marshall Plan was a waste of American resources. It helped rebuild Europe. It was very successful, and there's no reason it can't be successful again. But there is a deeper problem here I want to allude to, and that is that these, a lot of these people are climate refugees. They're, they're people who are subsistence farmers, particularly at high elevations in Guatemala, who, who are now starving to death because of climate change. They cannot grow their crops because the climate has changed so much. And we need a president who will lead the country and the world a clean energy future, which can defeat the climate crisis. Uh, the national security forces in the United States have told us this is a national security threat. We're going to have millions of climate refugees around the world that they're going to drive instability. We need a president with a vision that will de- we'll defeat the climate crisis. And I have offering You're- that. I'm saying it should be the number one priority the United States. And if we don't do that, there's not enough walls high enough to prevent millions of people from being on the move across the world.
1: Your immigration policy, its a, a proposal, is extensive, and it calls for meeting or exceeding the number of uh, refugee resettlements that the Obama administration achieved—110,000 uh, refugee resettlements to the United States. Um, you're talking about how there could be. A, a call for even greater number of um, refugees coming to the United States. What's, what's your number? What, how many refugees would you, as president, um, green light?
2: Well, I would start by going back to our historic levels that were at that 100,000 And there's no reason, as the refugee crisis internationally increases, that the United States' commitment should decrease. We are no less a compassionate people or a caring people or a, or a wise people that understands we're connected to the rest of the world than we were t- five years ago. The refugee crisis has grown by the millions, in part because of the climate crisis, in part because of other issues. And I just do not believe we're less compassionate in my generation than in my parents' generation or my grandparents' generation or my great-grandparents' ref- generation, where we've admitted refugees by the tens and hundreds of thousands. So we should start by going back to our historic levels, and it should grow over time, in my view, in part because there are increasing numbers of millions of people in harm's way because of the climate crisis, and we should recognize that. Look, our numbers are something like one-fifth to one-tenth per capita of other European nations in the developing world, and I do not believe we are a less caring people than the people in Germany. That's what I believe about America. We're built on immigration. We're built on recognizing that refugees can build this nation as they are. I mean, our family's physical therapists came from Vietnam, and they settled here because we had a governor who was a Republican, by the way, a former Republican Governor Dan Evans, who admitted and welcomed Vietnamese refugees following the Vietnam War. And because of that, we now have doctors, lawyers, and physical therapists who have helped build this state. We've seen the power of diversity build our state and our nation, and we should not cut off the very lifeblood of America. So, Governor, which Go- is people in distress.
0: Governor Jay Inslee, I want to ask about your signature issue: the climate, the climate crisis, climate change. Uh, you've you've called out some very prominent projects, fossil fuel-based projects by name, like Dakota Access and Keystone. do, do they stop immediately under an Inslee presidency? And what happens to the jobs that are now? reliant on that sort of construction while we still have an economy um, and a a whole infrastructure that needs and operates on fossil fuels?
2: Well, I'm all about jobs. That's been my fundamental um, goal as a governor and as a member of Congress. And we've been very successful in our state. We've built the, the fastest growing economy, fastest GDP growth, fastest wage growth, because we focused on jobs. And if we want to focus on jobs, we've got to focus on the jobs of the present and the future, not the jobs of the past. Donald Trump is still chasing the phantoms of jobs that are going to be disappearing in the future by necessity. Now, people who argue with me about that, they, don't, they shouldn't be arguing with me. They should be arguing with, with science. And the science is clear. We cannot be building uh, – we cannot be using fossil fuels – as the dominant source of our energy in the upcoming decades, or the planet will cook. Now, that's just a scientific reality, and you don't have to argue with me. Go argue with, with Einstein and the, and the laws of thermodynamics. So we know the jobs of the future are in clean energy, and it is, a, it is a fool's errand to try to tell our grandchildren, you're going to be working in the coal industry, because if you are, the, the, the major parts of the planet will not be inhabitable. So we need to focus on the jobs of the future, and that means that we should be very, very reluctant to be uh, making investments that have large infrastructure projects with with 60-, 70-year work life where we know they can't be in operation in the next decade or two. My plan calls for weaning ourselves off of coal in 10 years and off of fossil fuels in our grid in 15, and those are scientific necessities. That's not something I thought of. It's what the laws of thermodynamics and physics demand, and so uh, uh, it would be a mistake to give a false, deceptive statement to our children that if you run a great career, you should go to into the coal industry and then you can retire in fifty years. That is just not possible. But those those projects, honest with those people. But those projects
0: that are underway now. Do they stop or not?
2: Well, the ones that are permitted. Sometimes permitting you have to accept them. But I'm calling for a climate assessment that when we look at large fossil fuel infrastructure projects, if they're inconsistent with the science, we simply do not permit them going forward. And let's put these people to work in the jobs that are increasing. And we need to look at the reality. Clean energy jobs, and I don't think a lot of people know this, jobs in the clean energy industries are growing twice as fast as the rest of the U.S. economy. There's many, many, many more people working in the clean energy industry than in the coal mines today. And the coal uh, jobs are going away no matter what because they're not as, uh, coal is now too expensive. Two thirds of the coal plants have shut in the last decade in the United States because clean energy uh, sources are much less expensive. So this is a, both a physical and economic reality. And if you really love your kids, you shouldn't tell them that they should be studying for a career in fossil fuels because those careers are not going to be here in the decades to come. They can't be because if they are, we won't have be able to have a planet that we recognize. That's a physical and scientific reality. Before
0: we let you go, Governor, a uh, qu- question about uh, fundraising. First, what, what, what will your second quarter numbers show, and, and how many donors are you able to demonstrate, knowing that the DNC rules mean you need 130,000 to qualify for the debate in September?
2: Yeah, we're approaching 90,000, and we've had a surge uh, since the last debate, both in numbers and in, in amount of contributions. I don't have a, a quarter number for you, so we'll share that when we've got that in a week or so. It'll be consistent with where we are, which is we are introducing ourselves to the nation. We're still unknown, largely. About a third of the people could pick me out of a lineup. But we've had a surge of interest because of this climate change message, and I do believe that the uniqueness I have, which is I am the only candidate who has said that I will make defeating climate crisis the top priority of the United States— I'm unique in that I'm the candidate who has worked with my state to pass a 100% clean energy bill. I'm unique as a candidate uh, because I've been working on this for a couple of decades, and my plan has been named the top plan by uh, any number of people from Ocasio-Cortez, who's called it the gold standard, to a group uh, yesterday uh, who named us as the top rated, um, meeting the, the qualities we need to actually solve this problem. So I think people are coming to recognize uh, both by experience and depth of commitment and the comprehensive nature of my plan that if you agree, as I do, that we should meet our moral commitment to our grandchildren, that my candidacy is one worth looking at. So we're happy about the momentum at the moment, but we have a long ways to go. All right. We're still 90, the new kid on the block.
0: 90,000. That's uh, on its way to 130. Um, uh, you bet. Thanks. We appreciate the update. Governor Jay Inslee of Washington State, uh, have a happy and healthy uh, and safe Fourth of July. We appreciate uh, you being with us today.
2: You bet. Don't forget to vote. See you later.
0: <laughs> Mary Alice, I am struck by that number. I mean, just that, that aside, I think... You had uh, an opportunity for Governor Inslee in that debate last week to highlight the issue that he's been running on and, and putting at the center of, of the discussion, often clashing with some of the Democratic Party leaders over how it's being handled. Um, and and it, it's, it's, a, it's a tough issue for Democrats to deal with, maybe not among themselves, but looking forward to how they're going to frame up against a Republican who um, is on record saying that, that climate change is not real uh, and that has been a big booster of a lot of the projects that Jay Inslee says shouldn't even happen.
1: Yeah, he doesn't mince words saying it's just now, if you love your kids keep them from going into the fossil fuel industry. Uh, And, you know, he kind of has a a tint of that Warren-esque campaign and that he does have very extensive policy proposals on a number of issues. And we've seen voters respond well to that. Um, You know, I'm surprised that he lists actual numbers of refugees he'd be willing to let into the country if president um, has a lot of information on on his website. And, you know, if he is going to get a look, I think that voters will appreciate that.
0: Yeah, and, and it, it, as we mentioned earlier, it's a it's a crowded field and a crowded rest of the field, um, but you get a sense of the diversity of views and backgrounds, um, I think, just hearing it from Governor Inslee. All right, that does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. To everyone out there, enjoy the 4th of July. We'll be back afterward with another edition. As always, thanks to Trevor Hastings, Angie Yak, Avery Miller. Thanks to Mary Alice for filling in today. Uh, we'll be back with you soon. Have a great 4th.